is correct. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Moments of Truth, the show about my favorite moments from my favorite things. I'm Bill Coffin, and today we'll be discussing the world's most influential fantasy role-playing game, Dungeons and Dragons. In 1974, a pair of wargamers named Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson published a fantasy role-playing game called Dungeons and Dragons. It came from an epiphany they had while developing their medieval war game, Chainmail. You know, if you pick up one of the little soldier miniatures on the table, and you might ask yourself, who actually is this anonymous knight or archer? What do they want out of life? What do they like as a person? How would they behave when not told to obey orders? What is their hero story? From that, Gygax and Arneson developed a kind of game that took a quantum leap away from the intense tabletop tactics of wargaming and into the direction of shared narrative, collaborative imagination, and heroic fantasy. Thus was Dungeons and Dragons born. Widely considered to be the grandfather of the role-playing hobby and industry, D&D players create heroic alter egos, their characters, and embark on swords and sorcery adventures in which they fight monsters, explore dangerous places, solve puzzles, face moral challenges, get treasure, and create a kind of organic story of how it all unfolded. Challenges are typically resolved by a mixture of collaborative planning, tactics and strategic decision-making, play acting in the style of one's character, and of course, resolving the uncertain outcomes of things by throwing various combinations of four, six, eight, 10, 12, 20, and 100-sided dice to see if fate has been kind. All this under the watchful eye of the Dungeon Master, the person at the table who acts as both the game's narrator and referee. D&D was a runaway hit, and while it's been the standard bearer for both the role-playing game publishing industry and the hobby that supports it, it has been revised and republished in various editions over the years as the rules keep changing and evolving. Today, D&D is in its fifth edition, and it is more successful than ever. In 2017, some 12 to 15 million people were reported to play the game in North America alone. That compared to a previous estimate in 2004 that 20 million people had played the game in total worldwide. D&D has massively influenced popular culture, prompting not only a huge and diverse fan base, but a large constellation of fellow game design and publishing companies. It has made its way by license, reference, and inspiration into countless novels, comics, video games, music, television, and movies. It has also spawned endless websites, blogs, and podcasts created by its players, designers, and publishers to discuss the game, its culture, and its unique status as one of the greatest stages ever developed for the theater of the mind. I have spent most of my life playing Dungeons and Dragons and the many other role-playing games it has inspired. I even wrote and designed role-playing games professionally once upon a time, just not for Dungeons and Dragons itself. But it's safe to say that, it, you know, of all the topics we could discuss on the show, few have had as big an impact on me as, as, and always will have as big an impact on me as Dungeons and Dragons. To talk about D&D is in some ways to talk about my own origin story as a writer and to get into the finer details of my real-world character sheet. D&D is something I could easily fill an hour just with my introduction, so I'll stop here and welcome my fellow party members so we can get this adventure rolling. With me today is Polyhedra Dice Hoarder, Chris Crenshaw. Howdy, folks. Graph Paper Aficionado, Tom Hespos. Hello, hello. And the guy who's always got a spare pencil for you, Joe Pace. Good evening. Everyone, welcome. Normally, we determine the order that we're going to speak in advance. Often, everybody's moment of truth kind of creates sort of a, a natural flow of order. Uh, but I think this time, what we're going to have to do is uh, take a D&D convention. And I've got in my hand here a beautiful, nice, shiny blue D20. And I think in tradition, we're just going to have to roll for initiative, see who goes, okay? Uh, let's see. I'm going to roll. All right. All right, I got a 10. Joe? You've got a 13. Chris? Oh, buddy, you got a 3. Oh, and Tom, you got a five. So I guess it's Joe, me, Tom, and Chris, yeah? That's it. Okay, well, no pressure. Um, <laughs> Joe, okay. take it away. Give, uh, give us your D&D moment of truth, man. Bill, I'm concerned that you didn't add my uh, plus three dexterity bonus. <laughs> <laughs> well, you just rolled natural one on your bluff uh, roll there, pal, and uh, no, it's not going to happen. I'm telling you right now, you got to tangle with my 18 charisma at your, at your risk. <laughs> You know, the difference between adult role players and kid role players is learning that charisma is not a dump stat. I just have to start with that. So anyway. You're talking to a guy with like a five strength, five dexterity, everything. <laughs> the charisma is like 18. I'll keep it. Okay. 
Yeah, exactly, so. exactly. But but Joe, what's your D and D moment? Sure. I mean, we, I'm going to take you to 1983. Uh, I was eight years old. Uh, my older brother Al was ten. Uh, we were rummaging around in the attic, and we came across the iconic red box of the D and D basic set. Uh, I was intrigued by the big old dragon on the front. But I was kind of anxious about that caveat, ages ten and up, because back then, if it was in print, it meant it was a rule. Don't worry, my brother said to me with the arrogant conviction of that big brotherhood. He said, I'm 10 enough for both of us. And so we plunged on in, and, and like so many of us, that led to uh, splurges on dice, modules, handbooks, afternoons spent around the table imagining characters and then watching them die. Uh, my first effort, I think, was like a Hermes worshiping cleric named Jonesy. And Jonesy never saw level two. Um, but before <laughs> long, I moved on to the phase of making the most noble character I could think of, right? Sir Benedict Eustatius III was this central casting, lawful good paladin, you know, wavy chestnut locks, broad shoulders, heart for justice. Sir Benedict had this storied career, right? Slashing and moralizing his way into the upper strata of levelhood. Eventually, with a bank account to make Jeff Bezos envious, he retired to become Lord Eustatius. And I happily spent many hours and lots of his gold designing his seat, the shining white marble hilltop castle sanctimony. Uh, he was uh, he was fun for me and nobody else. He was deeply predictable, boring, pretentious, the whole bit. But he had these three sons, and he had an eldest and heir who was this doughty fighter, right, like his father, inheriting the greatness, weapons, and armor, and everything. And the middle boy yielded up all those trappings of wealth and worldly things and became a monk. He was a devoted acolyte of the backhand brothers, which made his pious father a different kind of proud. Uh, the youngest, though, was this spindly bookish lad, right, who had inherited his father's name and not much else. He was smart, friendly, likable, self-effacing. He became interested in the arcane and studied to become a mage. And when he turned 17, I turned him loose on the campaign field. I, I delighted. This was the most nuanced, well-drawn character I'd ever created. And he promptly expired in his first battle. He was actually jumped in an alley. He was knifed by bandits on his way out of the shop where he had just bought his backpack and torches and flew <laughs> 50 feet of rope. And uh, by the way, you know, my brother. my, my not surviving character generation. <laughs> right? My, <laughs> I don't know who here has an older brother. But when your older brother is your dungeon master, he, he exists to torture you. And my brother was no exception. Lord Eustatius, who had never really managed to connect with his youngest son and namesake, was bereft. He turned to the resurrectionist guild and he showered them with, which, uh, speaking of my brother, he charged me an exorbitant fee uh, to finance this resurrection. And it worked. And this rookie magic user was yanked back from the nether realm. But the dice were full of caprice that day. And Benedict IV returned as a young troll. My <laughs> brother, the presiding DM, he found that a source of great amusement. Initially, I, I couldn't agree, but then I thought, hey, I have a noble magic using lawful good troll on my hands, and thus began the storied career of Grey Benedict, a massive shambling mountain of wizardry who wandered the realms, putting wrong things to right and startling tavern keepers everywhere. I was 13. Uh, that was when D&D taught me that straightforward, uncomplicated narratives are dull, and that pain is the great plot device of all storytelling. And from then on, my poor characters have endured lives of bitter reverses and sudden left turns. Uh, Gray Benedict is much more interesting than Sir Benedict Eustatius III. Uh, I will never forget that moment as a moment of truth for me because it was, you go from, I'm going to set this narrative and it's a, a very predictable narrative arc with a flawless character to something that's far more interesting, right? And being able to turn bad luck into something that's that's fun and interesting and it was a lesson i've never forgotten as a, as a writer and a storyteller and i think dnd is you know if you go back to the, the mid 80s it was one of the few places that you could learn that kind of a, of a lesson um, around a table with your buddies yeah you know one of the real critical parts of of dungeons and dragons of all role-playing games but dnd definitely was the you know the place where a lot of a whole generation of gamers learned it for the first time was this notion that you created a heroic alter ego you created your character with which to play the game that character could die and often did you know when you're just starting out the lethality is actually pretty bad you know especially in the earlier editions of the game and and it was not uncommon for people to roll up you know their new characters and then the survival rate for the first night is just not good you know losing your character a lot was, was a really big deal what i love about your story though joe is that it also touches upon this for me, anyway, for the people I knew who played the game, this deep-seated desire, which was in the early days in D&D, you know, when you create a character, it was pretty carefully prescribed what kinds of people you could play, like the standard fantasy good guy races. You could be a human. You could be an elf. You could be a dwarf. You could be a halfling. Basically, it's a hobbit. 
You could be a half elf. You could be half orc. That was really kind of it. There are all these other cool monsters. You could be a gnome. Uh, sorry, you could be a gnome. <laughs> Nobody I knew ever played a gnome, like ever, ever. You had these standard archetypical races. That's what you could play. And if you wanted to play something else, you really couldn't. The game was like, yeah, no, those are monsters, not for you. Although there was the whole, if your character died, you knew the right people, you know, certain spellcasters in the game had spells that could resurrect you or could reincarnate you. And reincarnation was like kind of you roll to see what you may come up as. And it was meant as this womp womp. Sorry, you came back as a lizard man. That must stink for you. And most players I knew were like, oh yeah, lizard man. Finally, I beat the system. I got the loophole. You know, people were like, yes. So like when your guy comes back as a troll, that was like the gold ring for a lot of people. Like I may have died, but joke's on you, man. Cause now I'm a cool monster. I regenerate. I look funky. It's like, it's just, it's just the coolest thing. So I love that story because it's that, that's such a thing. Well, I love playing. I, I played that character for a long time because I argued my way into him being able to continue to be a magic user. And he continue, he had his intellect. He had all of his scores. And so he was a smart troll who could continue to yeah. um, cast spells, but could also mess people up. Um, and so it actually ended up being a lot of fun. <laughs> well, there was a great supplement for one of the early editions of the game for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons called the Rogues Gallery. Mm-hmm. And it was basically this big folio of these pre-generated, you know, kind of non-player characters. So it's basically for the, meant for the dungeon master to be able to easily introduce characters into the game for whatever reason. But the really great part of it was in the back of it, they had this section where they kind of offered up the characters played by the people who created the game. You know, now these like, oh, wow, what did Gary Gygax play? You know, and that sort of stuff. And a couple of them were like non-standard. There's like a guy who was a big lizard man because he had did the whole reincarnation thing. Somebody else was a centaur. And I remember like looking at that going, how, how did they do that? That's, that's impossible. And, you know, completely forgetting the fact that in the game itself, Gygax is like, hey, if you want to change the rules, go ahead and do it. That notion was often lost on younger players, especially for younger players who were a dungeon master and had that role of, you know, arbitrating the game. Being high down with the rules was a lot easier <laughs> than just being flexible. Um, and so a lot of people are like, no, the rules are the rules. No lizard men for you. Sorry. You know, there's, all, there's a lot of that going on. For us, one of the books that we got, I remember when we got deities and demigods, and we're going through it, right? And there's, you know, the Aztecs and everybody else. But we're like, here are the non-human deities. And you're thinking like, oh, all these monsters, like many of them, like have cultures and they, 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 you know, they worship gods and they have families and all this kind of stuff. And, and so when I had my character come back as a troll, I was thinking like, well, you know, he's still a sentient being and, and we can, we can make this work. And I think that was a, a testament to the, the creativity of the, the makers of the game that allowed what you're talking about, that kind of latitude that you were willing to take it to, to move the game into places that uh, the center lane might not, immediately make apparent yeah i feel like it's that's something that has improved in the latest edition of dnd like just the sort of fluidity of the game it offers a mechanism by which you can wave your hand and just deal with something easily you know the the advantage uh mechanic and Mm -hmm. it never stops getting better it seems to me i love it better than i ever did i played dnd through most of its editions over over the years and um this is a, a fraught area because people have very strong opinions about different editions. And yes, they do. <laughs> it gets kind of meta. First, there are people who are really hung up on a particular edition. Either they super, super love it or they super, super hate it. But then there's also people who just like, ugh, you know, these edition wars are so tiresome. Why do we even bother? I'm so beyond it. You know, I get all that. I really do. And I get a love for a particular edition. Each edition feels like it is its own thing. There are certain aspects to the game mechanics how the rules work that provide a certain unique aspect to the play. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons feels different than Advanced Dungeons and Dragons 2nd Edition, feels different from Basic Expert. They all have a kind of design ethic behind them. Yeah, to your point, Chris, <laughs> having played through a lot of them, I love 5th Edition. I mean, I've been playing these games since you know, like 1981, I think, and I just love the fifth edition so much. I mean, it is easily my favorite rule set. As a guy who's played it and a guy, as more importantly, as a guy who's DM'd it, I just love the way the rules work. They work the way I wish D&D rules have always worked. And I find myself house ruling D&D fifth edition way less than I ever house ruled any other edition of D&D. And for me personally, I know that means it's, it is for me the best designed version because it, it suits my particular play and the play of the people at my table, you know, very, very well. And so 
I'm very grateful for the design of it. Like buying a uh, a car that's, you know, five or six years in a production and they've worked out like all the annoying kinks. That, <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, I, I went right from AD&D to 5E. Like I, uh, and, and I was like, wow, they fixed all like that annoying stuff that didn't make any sense. I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Dude, you, yep. sk- you skipped like 30 years of game development. <laughs> you, went, you went from like a Model T to like a Bugatti Veyron. Like, wow, they sure did a lot with these car things. Yeah. Yeah, dude, they did. They did. Yeah. <laughs> I have to laugh because AD&D is still what I play. That's what I grew up with. That's what we played throughout the throughout the 80s and into the early 90s. Then I took a long time off. Like, you know, in my adulthood, I didn't play a lot. But then now that my kids a couple of years ago started being interested in it, I didn't have the bandwidth to go and learn a new system. So I went and bought all the old books, the AD&D that I was comfortable with, that I knew I knew what page in the DMs got. I could find the hit dice tables. I knew where you go in the player's handbook to roll a character. And I said, I, I want to be utterly competent when I try to teach my kids the game. It's also, you know, an example of, of nostalgia sometimes rules all. That's what I remember as my version of the game. I played a lot of AD&D and I've gone back to AD&D quite a bit, which for many people, AD&D was where it all really started. Like I know the original Dungeons and Dragons box set is, uh, you know, th- that's the true start of the game, but I guess it was about 1979, maybe, maybe, maybe early 77 is when they started to put out a more advanced version. It was 77, I believe. Yeah, and it was split up into three hardcover books. You had the player's handbook, the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Monster Manual. Together, they really made up the game. And that was like a quantum leap forward in terms of the complexity of the game. And also just in terms of just the diversity of what you could do in it. For a lot of people, that's kind of like the Rosetta Stone oh, yeah. of D&D, you know. And I will say, by the way, just as somebody who's spent a fair amount of his career in print publications, I still have my original AD&D books. And they have been played hard and they are still in great condition the binding is great no pages falling out i mean those things were built sturdy okay were big big props to everybody at tsr who published those books because honestly production qualities in the rpg industry kind of fell off in subsequent years but man those first books i've got they are hard yeah they absolutely do i bought a cheap set off of ebay like cheap you know (laughs) and well that's what i did same thing and, and i mean yeah they're scuffed they're fine yeah, you know, they they all hold their pages. Well, they have they all had cloth binding I mean, They're really high quality books. They're just fantastic. Well, and they fall open to the right page. Oh, yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Very, very cool. So it's funny, I gave this a lot of thought. For much of my role-playing career, and certainly for a lot of my DD career, I didn't actually play DD a whole heck of a lot. I often was the guy Shanghai to be the, the dungeon master instead. And, you know, being the DM, it's a very different kind of experience because you're the one behind stage, right? You're the one running the game, you're the keys of the kingdom. And so you're doing a lot of the homework and that sort of stuff. And it just requires an extra amount of work. Most people don't want to be the DM. And if you're doing it, and if you do what the group deems to be a, a decent job at it, well, then that's like no good deed goes unpunished. You get stuck with the job. <laughs> and that's like, here you are 30 years later, still a DM. Like that's just, that's just, that's just how it goes, right? One does not multi-class easily out of DM, but. <laughs> <laughs> that's a true story. <laughs> it, right? it really is. So I don't have a lot of player stories necessarily, but I will say that I do remember very specifically when I first learned of D&D and it was the summer of 1981. I was 10 going on 11 and I was hanging out with some friends of mine. They're all talking about this thing. And like we're, at, we're at the pool. People were talking about this thing with like these hushed tones, like, man, this thing is so cool. I can't believe this. Holy cow, this new thing. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? Like, dude, we're talking about D and D. I'm like, what, what's D and D? Like, don't you know it's Dungeons and Dragons, man? I'm like, wait, what? I was like, Dungeons and Dragons, like that's a great name. Like, why? Like, is it like a, it's like a rock band? Is that like Kiss or something? And like, no, 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 it's a game. What, like Monopoly? Like, no, not like Monopoly. You don't understand. You can do anything in this game. You can be a wizard. You can get the Ring of Invisibility. You can have the Vorpal Sword. You can kill the Black Dragon. And I'm like, wait, whoa, 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 stop. <laughs> I'm like. <laughs> Like none of this makes any sense to me, but I I need to know more because I don't know what you're saying, but I love every bit of it. <laughs> That's exactly, yeah, exactly it. I was like, I gotta have it. I was I like, have I have it. to have this. Like, what what is this thing? And and you know, they're kind of explaining to me. No, it's like this thing where you create characters. I'm like, you run around like playing Star Wars, like in the yard. Like, no, no, no. Like on sheets of paper. I'm like, 
okay, like <laughs> bring me to your leader. I just need to understand this better. We're done for the day at the pool. We got a bike home and we were definitely part of the kids on bikes generation, right? We did the whole strangers things thing and just, you know, scooted on back to the house, cracked open the books and like, okay. And they walked me through making a character. I'm like, oh, holy Moses, this is astonishing, right? And I made this really horrible, wimpy magic user. My first DM, he was super gentle with me, kind of walking me through so I didn't immediately get slaughtered. He gets a crystal ball. Like, oh, this is super awesome. I don't know what to do with a crystal ball. I just hang it off my belt. And I imagine this like netting off my belt that holds a big like palantir, which is like the stupidest thing ever. the style at the time. <laughs> the style at the time. <laughs> we used to have a crystal ball in my belt, you see? Um, you can see all the way to Shelbyville. <laughs> We're going on. He goes, oh, and you also find this big book with a lock on it. And I remember thinking, well, lock. Well, I shouldn't break that. I might get in trouble. So, and I don't have the key. So, all right, I guess I'll never open it. And I was like, well, I'll put this in my backpack and I'll just, when we get back to town, I'll sell it for a couple gold pieces, I guess. And like, it hadn't even occurred to me, dude, this is a spell book. This is something you break the lock open to find the treasures within. This is arcane power. Like all of these standard ways you play D&D &D went right by me my first time. Like I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I remember like the description of how we're going down this dungeon and we're fighting these orcs. One guy stepped in green slime and there was a trap and I'm like, holy Moses. And I went home and I was like, mom, 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 mom. You are not going to believe what I just played. I just played the greatest game that's ever been made. I just played Dungeons and Dragons. And my mom's like, wait, 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 wait. I read about this. I think I've heard about this because we're right we're kind of right on the cusp of the big moral panic surrounding Dungeons and Dragons, right? There's a lot of concerns as often happens when a really new entertainment medium pops up and it spreads like wildfire. People often get the heebie-jeebies about, well, what's this doing to people? It happened with you know, comic strips. It happened with radio. It happened with TV. It happened with video games. It happens every time. TikTok. <sighs> well, TikTok probably has it coming, but, <laughs> but everything else though, you know, it always has this moral panic attached to it. And my mom was like, isn't this the game I heard about with kids like losing their minds and running around in steam tunnels and bad things happening? And I'm like, mom, I don't know about any of that. All I know is I got to get this game. Okay. And she goes, we'll, 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 we'll see. And that was mom code for <laughs> not in your life, kid. Right. I didn't let it go. And I was because I could still go to my friend's house and play. And so for that summer, we just kept playing. And I remember, you know, oftentimes what would happen is the people who could play kept shifting in and out. So we always just reroll characters, whether or not they died, just because it always felt like a new campaign was starting, even though we just played, you know, with our characters like two days ago. So we were constantly cycling through new characters and all that. It was just crazy fun. We just had such a blast. By the end of the summer, I was so into it. And I was so enjoying it. My parents took notice and my birthday was in September. You know, my mom was like, well, what do you want for your birthday? I'm like, oh man, I would love a D&D &D set. And my mom's like, mm -hmm, yeah, we'll see. I'm like, okay, well, I'm not getting a DD set. I get this. All right, I'll have to marshal my 10, 11 year old resources some other way to figure out how to keep playing. But lo and behold, my birthday comes and I open up my present, and there it is the 1981 Tom Moldvay Evil Otis cover red box of basic DD. There's a great picture from Advanced Dungeons and Dragons on the old. Dungeon Master's shield, right? Which is like this kind of cardboard prop you have so the players can't see what the DM's up to. And it's got this fantastic mural on it by an artist named David A. Trompier. And on that mural, it's just all these different episodes from what you would imagine from a D&D adventure. And one of them is this party as they're opening up the treasure, you know, the fighter unsheaths this magic sword and it's glowing. And he's got this dumbstruck look on his face. Like, <gasps> and that was my look then. I opened it up and I couldn't believe my mom reversed herself and got me the prize of prizes, my own D&D &D set. I was just thunderstruck. I was like, mom, thank you so much. She goes, you know, I want to make sure you don't go crazy about this game. I'm like, no problem, mom, you got it. And she goes, would you mind helping me make a character? Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And we stopped right there and I explained to my mom as best a freshly minted 11 year old could what the point of the game was, what you do, how you make a character. Here's the character you make. And I walked her through it and she made a character. I had her like, you know, spare. I think we did like a sparring match with like her and a goblin. And my mom was not really big into the whole killing monsters and taking their stuff kind of deal. She figured out what the game was about. She was, okay, great. Well, you have fun. Like, I will. Thank you, mom. And that was that. You know, my mom was not the kind of person to really get into a lot of the geek things that I really did deep dive into over the course of my life. That just wasn't her wavelength. But I will never forget the fact that she let me actually, you know, get 
I said at D&D. She, she, she opened the door for me to really enjoy Dungeons and Dragons on my own terms. And for me, started a journey that has continued to this day. And it's continued in many uh, very meaningful ways for me, you know, as a form of entertainment, as, you know, an engine that fired my imagination in very, very deep and, and powerful ways, as a way that forms super deep relationships with my friends, with whom I played, with people with whom I reconnected over the years through Dungeons and Dragons, with professional opportunities, as I wrote role-playing games for a living for a while, you know, and actually got a kind of a fan base for a while there. But I have Dungeons and Dragons to thank for it. And I especially have my late mother to thank for it because she was willing to, to take a chance on something she didn't understand, but knew it meant something to me and let me get that set when I couldn't get one for myself. So I'll always be thankful to her for that. Mom, thank you so much. Uh, and that is my D&D moment of truth. I love that. That's good momming. Yeah, that's just fantastic totally momming. momming. <laughs> High quality momming, absolutely. Uh, no, absolutely. It is interesting. I mean, I... I think that the set that we found in the attic was actually something that someone had given my father. My father was like, what is this? I, and he just sort of threw it in the attic, right? Until we found it later. And so like our parents just didn't get it. It wasn't part of their worldview. They couldn't like liberate themselves enough to, yeah. to deal with that, right? And I remember we enticed my father to play one time and my father who was, you know, an ex-cop who owned his own tree care company made a character named, a warrior named Chainsaw. They played with us that one time. I, I think to that same thing, like, right? Like trying to figure out like, what are these guys into? Is it okay? And then, yeah, okay, it's fine. And we killed some stuff. Yeah. And so for your mom, for your mom to do that, that's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, Bill, I also, uh, I had a brush with the satanic panic with D&D. Uh, my paternal grandmother uh, lived in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and I'd, I'd visit every summer. And the the first year I visited her, after I had started playing, I had brought along like a fantasy book that I actually got from a Christian bookstore, <laughs> and I had some D and D paraphernalia, or, you know, some, some books that I just I like to read through all the time. She was like, "Isn't that the devil?" <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm like, "No, no, not really." I, no and she's and she takes a look at the cover of this book i've got she's like oh because it looks like you know demons and stuff flying around it and i'm like actually uh that came from a christian bookstore and it's just the story of jesus with uh fantasy trappings <laughs> <laughs> so it it sort of shut her down the whole <laughs> there are zombies i know that giant yellow snake looks troubling but <laughs> but I, I i talked her down off the ledge i mean not she was the kind of grandmother that was, uh, you know, quite willing to beat you with a hairbrush <laughs> if, if you needed it. But if she, well, if she thought you needed it, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but but uh, and beat that Satan out of you. Yeah. I mean, I you know, I was I was old enough at that point. I don't know. I was ten that I knew who I was, and whatever she said wasn't going to have much effect on me. So the interesting thing about my experiences with the moral panic, it was less about Satanism and it was more about kids get so deep into the game, they forget who they really are and have some sort of psychotic break. And then they just run away from society and you find them living like troglodytes in like the sewer systems of America. And they just completely have forgotten who they are and, and all that sort of stuff. And my mom was kind of worried about that. But I think secondarily, it was this notion of you can do anything in this game. So there's the possibility you can be a character and do evil. You know, it's kind of assumed you'd be a good guy, but it was like the Grand Theft Auto of its time. It, it actually was like thief is a class. Yeah, thief is a class. Assassin's a class, and you know, it had that good versus evil, law versus chaos kind of axis, and you had nine alignments, and you had to figure out where do you fit on all these things. And there was no benefit or penalty to choosing any alignment. It's you were where you were. That's that's the guy you created. The parents of my neck of the woods who were hung up over D and D, that aspect of it really troubled them. But the game was not an automatic steer towards you must be the good person, you must be the shining knight, you must be saving the day. And even though every kid I know experimented with being a complete awful black heart in the game at least once, it didn't overtly try to push you to be, you know, some sort of ne'er do well. You know, really, it really did not. You know, you could try it, but it, it's kind of a, a little bit of a dead end generally. It, it, it's not all that fun. Well, you will find players who will decide, okay, this is my outlet to be a complete sociopath. And they'll just do all kinds of disruptive things in the game and they'll blame it on their alignment. All right, so let's go to the tavern and find something. I'm going to kill the bartender. What? Well, it's in my alignment. I mean, you always have that kind of knucklehead. I'm just playing my character. Yeah, that's a thing. 
and it happens. But I think ultimately what that does is it gets people disinvited from playing groups, certainly on the adult level. As kids, it's a little bit like you may not have as much flexibility to like you're playing with who you're playing with. So the, the need to deal with that can be a little more tricky. But certainly as you get older, if you have somebody who's acting like a, just a halfwit and they're like, oh, well, I'm just going to be a complete disruptive jerk because the game allows me to do so. People are just going to go, well, that's great. Have fun. Find like-minded people and do your thing with them. You're not going to be part of our game. And that's a part of the game too. Like you can just go, you know, I'm going to opt out of playing with you. and <laughs> We'll play people. That's a big part of it. There's a social contract to D&D. And I think a lot yeah. of its detractors forgot about that, that, you know, you play this game by getting together. In, in the old days, you got around a table, right? And they used to call them tabletop RPGs because you had to distinguish them from like, say, a computer role-playing game or something. Nowadays, you can play them through Zoom or, you, or, you know, 10 years ago, you can play them through email. And there were lots of electronic ways to do it. But in the old days, you had to actually gather personally. And it was as much a social experience as it was any kind of fantasy or tactical experience. And that's still true today. I mean, D&D is an inherently social game and that's one of the things that's wonderful about it It, it's nothing without that social interaction yeah and if you're going to use that social interaction as an opportunity to act like a complete maniac well in all societies there are repercussions for that right and it's like i've never seen a group of people who all decided to play complete chaotic evil wackadoodles and that group lasted for more than like a day (laughs) right it's just (laughs) it just it just does it's the reason why it's the reason why goblins don't have a space program right they just can't come together and work that long towards a common goal it's just it just racist it just doesn't work (laughs) it is interesting how you talk about you know moral frameworks and this concept of like what do you mean everybody isn't default and automatically the good guy in the story it's like well isn't it much more of a moral growth if you're good through choice versus good through default. Yeah. The concern Bill was describing is that it wasn't comics code compliant. Yeah. It's stupid. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, look at some of the artwork too. Like, I mean, there's some racy artwork. Yeah. And Especially in later books. Yeah. Yeah. Some of it has some sexual overtones. You know, I, mean, I remember my parents finding the, um, the deities and demigods or oh, that was the good one. <laughs> and, right, deities, demigods and fiend folio has got some stuff in there, man. And in the absence of internet, <laughs> <laughs> availability then you've got to go where you go to. I mean, this yeah. is a step above the serious the serious underwear catalog. It. <laughs> yeah and so you guys <laughs> but i mean i was a i remember when i was a kid the the was it was it mazes and monsters the made for tv movie starring about, tom uh, hanks tom hanks yeah. losing his nut and gonna go jump off the building yep. and yeah and you know there was i guess i think that was the tail end of some of that yeah um, yeah that panic you're talking about it became ludicrous and people were kind of like, this is really sick. It was like the reefer madness of Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> right. All right. Yeah, the panic has gotten ridiculous. Let's move exactly. past this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Tom, let's move on to you. What's your what's your Dungeons and Dragons well, moment of truth? I'm, I'm glad that you guys touched on the whole it's, it's about who you game with kind of thing. Because, you know, like I'm going through all my stories. And there are a million different D&D stories that I feel yeah. like I can tell. When I look back at the list of like, here's all the things that could be my moment of truth, I realize my moment of truth really is just being asked to come to the game table. And all the stories that I had, like basically centered around that. There's an immense amount of trust that's really conveyed between people when like you're asked to come to the table like you have to trust that people are going to show up because it sucks to like be missing players when you need to move through an adventure you have to trust people to have you know an understanding of the uh of the rules you're you may be making a fool out of yourself during this and you may be role playing and and you need to have a level of trust with the people that you're playing with it's like kind of like the people that you invite to go to the karaoke bar with you. Like, I'm going to make a fool out of myself here and I don't want to hear about it from you guys. You know, that kind of thing. So there's an immense amount of trust that kind of changes hands. I think like when you come to somebody's table for the first time. So, you know, I had a couple of stories I just wanted to tell that kind of illustrated that for me. And like, you know, to tell those, I think I need to introduce you to my first DM kid from three houses down the block for me named Eric Meisner. He was like one of the brainiest kids I ever knew. 
and you, you went into like his bedroom in his house and it was like the messiest bedroom that you'd ever seen and like the walls looked like complete strategist in new york city it was like books <laughs> and boxes on the shelf of games you know like all the avalon hill game like all the war games all the you know axis and allies and all that. the guy was just like a huge gamer and he's the guy that introduced me to D&D. And I played a couple of times with people from around the block. And we had a core group of about like five guys, you know, who would come together and play D&D. Almost just after he had introduced me to the game, we hit a summer where, you know, a lot of us had kind of just gone off in different directions on like family vacations and stuff like that. And it was me and Eric in town. And that was it. And uh, it was probably like July, you know, August, that kind of thing. All right, you know, you and me, buddy, what are we going to do? And, you know, the skies opened up, it was raining, and he was like, let's play D&D. And literally for the next two weeks, all I did was go to Eric's house at nine o'clock in the morning, play D&D through, straight through eating junk food, blah, 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 until his parents kicked me out of the house and I'd be back the next day at 9 a.m. Like, we're, we're going, we're, we're still going, right? Right? <laughs> he ran me through module after module after module. We did all the Slave Lord stuff and then Keep on the Borderlands and the Tomb of the Lit, like all these modules to like the point where he's like, all right, now I got to really start coming up with homebrew stuff. And I took a character, maybe like third or fourth level, like I'd been playing with the group, all the way up to like 25th level. <laughs> in the space of like two weeks of just playing back like with <laughs> That's awesome. immersion like almost like cramming for a test or something it was studying abroad all we yeah. ever did <laughs> <laughs> yeah right our friendship after that was just it was it was like on a different level because I, I think it was because of that trust the other thing i wanted to share uh second story like I had this sixth grade teacher, uh, Marcia Sitfer, God rest her soul. She was one of those like teachers that had like a real big impact on you. She had this mm -hmm. like, um, big, big shout out to the teachers, by the oh, way. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like, big shout out to the teachers. And you know, my, my school was so like accepting of the whole D and D thing, which was great. You know, Miss Sitfer used to be big on like making you write composition journals. And like my mom actually found a lot of the journals and dropped them off at my house a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and I've been going through them, which treasure. is interesting. It's treasure from like when you were a kid. So, you know, I'm reading all this like, you know, creative writing I did, a lot of which was D&D &D centered. But like Miss Sitfer was really big on like making you write down like what kind of a week you had. It was just like an exercise that she did. And, you know, like I just wanted to share with you, there was one particular week. You know, like she made you write down good things that happened and bad things that happened. Are you about to read from one of your journals? Yeah, yeah. <gasps> so, this oh, is the best. What happened this particular week was my knee hurts, which, you know, I handed in and she asked me to explain in her purple pen. She had this, uh, <laughs> pen she with. it was awesome. And, uh, you know, she explained, uh, oh, you know, Jim Chung pushed me down in, into the wall in front of the library. And, uh, you know, there's, some more purple pen, but uh, the thing, you know, my good thing for the week was John Lawtney, Danny LaSquadro, and Craig Larson let me play D&D &D with them. Not, you know, like, they let me play D&D &D with them. That was, like, a big acceptance thing for me. These are, like, now, you know, two of yeah. those guys are lifelong friends, you know, that stood up for me at my wedding. One's my best man. And, you know, that's where the friendship really got going. We, uh, you know, I said my school was like really accepting of the D&D &D thing. Like we had this guidance counselor named Doc Riley, who we were just terrible to. We could call them quack, you know, like, oh, that's really harsh. evil to the guy. But he was so nice to us. He let us take over his office during lunch periods because he was going out, you know, off campus to get lunch anyway. And he let us into his office and we just played D&D &D the entire time. And, you know, it was all, you know, this group that I, I just mentioned to the people I just mentioned. And we just played and played and played every lunch period to the point where like everybody was wondering what the hell we were doing in there. And then uh, one day Jimmy Caskey pissed in his fish tank and that was the end of D&D &D in the office. But wow. <laughs> That's a dick move. Yeah, right? Seriously. Move. Literally. Move. Literally. But, uh, you know, they were wow. really very accepting of D&D &D and like the satanic panic did not really affect us at that yeah. time. Maybe it should have. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we were a little. That boy's a bad influence. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> Chaotic neutral, at least. Was that your best man? Because, you know. That's cool. No, 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 no. He, he, he moved to Buffalo. 
too much anymore here and there, but, you know, <laughs> but, uh, you know that, that was the group. And like, you know, I've st- I start to look back at like all the people I played with D and D, you know, with over the years, they've always become my great friends, you know, which brings me to, you know, you guys being invited to your table, Bill, you know, it was like, I really didn't know you. And, you know, I actually didn't know, you know, the guy who asked me to come into that circle and you know, had no idea what your play styles were like, but like, you know, I heard like, he's a professional, he's done this professionally. And I'm like, I hadn't played D&D in 30 years. And I said to myself, like, I might never get the chance to do this again. And, and, you know, I would love to do it with, you know, somebody who's, you know, who's known for this kind of thing. And I am so glad that I jumped in on that. And I said, sure, what the hell, let's do it. So happy guys. I mean, it's, it's been an immense, like we've had some of the greatest stories, uh, you know, not just campaign stories of like what characters did and stuff like that, but just, you know, being around the table. I, I love it. Yeah. First of all, it has been, an immense pleasure to play with you guys. And I'm so glad that you guys are at my table and it's it's a real joy. But Tom, I, I hear what you're saying about like people let you play. Well, I'll say my first DM, he's a dear, dear, dear friend of mine named John Radosta. You know, John's just a couple years older than me, which right now doesn't matter, right? But back then it was a huge deal. He has like, you know, three or four years on me. So he may as well been you know living in another time zone i mean he was you know you're 11 and he's like 15 That's yeah i was like and he, and he was letting me be in his game dude a 15 year old wouldn't allow me in anything that was like a huge like social credibility thing i couldn't believe i felt so honored you know and it, and it felt so included and reach and yeah it's a, it's a hugely powerful thing during that initial rush of D, you know it was being referenced in things like the movie et and it was it was like there was a social phenomenon du jour right and then that passed. And then that initial popularity tailed off a little bit. And like anything, if you're still doing a trend after the trend is no longer cool, now you're deeply uncool. However cool it was to play D&D a year ago, now it's super uncool to be playing it now. And there's that long trough of if you were known to be a Dungeons & Dragons player, it was social poison. You were a geek, you were a dweeb, you were a nerd, you were a dork. You were, you know, living on the periphery of your social circles because you played this goofball game that most people started to have a lot of fun making fun of. That sucked. That was no fun at all. But, you know, the thing is, I just still loved what this game did for me. We had a great time. We grew, we got very, very close. And so the, those friendships you talk about, Tom, they really helped sustain me during my awkward adolescent years, you know, and then that part when you're growing up and you don't know which way is up, you question every single facet of your being. You have just a a million reasons to loathe yourself as you're growing up. But, you know, I had these people in my life that I could gather around and no matter how bad our day at school was, no matter what thing was going on, whatever, we still gather on the table, we still put on these alter egos and we still charged off into danger having each other's backs. And that felt really good. I really hear what you're saying, Tom, because that meant a lot to me as a kid, as an adolescent, and frankly, as when I became an adult, and as we all go through tough patches in our adulthood, there are always people whom I could game with. And knowing that those guys are always there for me, that was a huge, a huge thing. That meant a lot. It's one of the reasons why gaming means so much Don't to me. You're like hide the body friends, you know, like, <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. For sure. You know, like you've seen me play a half orc, you know, uh, <laughs> ranger and, and, yeah. uh, you know, try to act it out. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're all the body. <laughs> exactly. Well, Chris, so, so what is your moment of truth in D and D? I was a reading kid, you know, my dad tells me that I started reading from the newspaper at three. Probably because I would like sit on his lap and say, what does that say? And I just picked it up. But when the older son of my babysitter, I I would go there in the morning with my mom. She would drop us off at a babysitter and we would catch the bus at her house. So I'm like nine years old, I would say. This is original edition, basic D&D that I was first introduced to. Uh, It was a later printing. I think it was a pink box rather than red. But we must have played keep on the borderlands 20 times <laughs> fine module that um, is no none of us had money to go buy modules so we we would like do skirmishes and stuff but we would just 
we would try to find the right way through the keep on the borderlands we, we kind of perfected that i know every crevice of the caves of chaos <laughs> <laughs> that is such a great starter module honestly like it really is you go to a keep in the middle of nowhere a castle in the middle of nowhere there's caves chock-a-block with monsters they don't explain how all these different kinds of monsters live in harmony doesn't matter it just Go clean them out. <laughs> it's just, it's so simple. I love it. The introduction was a big deal to me. And, and, and what got, really got me was that these games were books. And there was so much to read and know, but also so much weight behind it. There was so much world behind it that you could imagine and build. And I, I got addicted to the idea of role-playing games as much as I did to playing. It just engaged that part of my head that loved complex rule sets and complication. And it led me into games more complicated than Risk. And it was like an explosion in my head. When, after a couple of years, we had started to collect some AD&D books, uh, I would borrow them for the weekend, and, and I'd take them to church. And I'd, I'd, I'd be reading deities oh. and demigods in church. Oh, respect. <laughs> nice. Respect. That's fantastic. Oh, man. That is great, man. Like, your hands start burning, right? <laughs> Wow. Save versus retribution. Yes. Plus 500 experience points. Yes. So, I mean, you know, that's what hooked me. But when I was 13, I moved to Baltimore and met a group of nerds that were unlike the nerds at home back in Richmond. They were real nerds. You know, they played D&D. And these were nerds. <laughs> and and they, I, I realized they were my people. And, you know, it was my first real AD&D campaign. But when I moved back to Richmond two years later, I had bought, I don't know, 15 or 20 role-playing games. I was so immersed in the whole thing. But when I moved back, there was nothing there for me. You know, there were, I had no friends. So I didn't play until I was, I don't know, 44 or 45 years old. Bill, you mentioned in some Facebook thread that, oh, well, I'll be doing my my uh, d d game. And I'm like, well, wait, what now? <laughs> and you know you got my attention <laughs> got any room in there for me and and bill says yeah we we need a uh we need a spellcaster we were talking about charisma not being a dumb stout we, they were playing first edition but i was like well i want to be a magic user you guys need that but i want to be charisma based i want to be i just want to be a little different so we, we just sort of rejiggered the the magic user class into a sorcerer i joined with a character named Mail. Who, who was a, a half-drow, apparently descended from Lothan in some sense, but really not not as emo as that sounds. He, he was like super <laughs> cheerful and, and really like happy and, and good-natured. He just like had all this stuff going on that he really wished weren't going on. <laughs> so I joined that campaign at third level in first edition. So in between third and fourth level, Bill's DMing and Tom is in that party as well and uh, he's got a character named Elmore the Thief or the, ha the Halfling Thief and Elmore had you know, a bit of a death wish his family had uh, had been killed in, in some sort of raid on his village and and he, he was prone to taking unwise risks but he was a lot of fun to play with uh, you know as, as a character and we had to infiltrate this temple there was this religious schism going on in our cleric's religion, and these people had a, a minotaur cleric with the crown of doom, and we had to take that from him, and we had to get some, we had to get him to like revive someone who had died, another character, and so it was personal. Well, we go through this adventure, and and I, we had many near brushes with death because this is a first edition, and there were a bunch of traps, any one of which could have killed any number of us. By the time we get there, we're pretty salty. Pretty mildly. <laughs> <laughs> and this Minotaur cleric starts making threats at us and you know monologuing. And we roll initiative. And the first thing my character does is poof, shoot him with a web spell and web him up to the wall. We've got him helpless. And and rather than kill him, we, we needed something from him. Elmore, the halfling thief, heats up an iron spike in a in a convenient brazier and climbs up the front of this, this this minotaur holds the spike right in his face and says listen you're gonna do this and you're gonna do it right now and you're gonna stop all this bullshit do you hear me and the thing about dungeons and dragons is that the dice 
make the story. <laughs> and Tom just absolutely crushed his intimidate role or, or whatever it was in that rule set. And not only did this guy fold, he promised to be good from now on. <laughs> and I, I, I can't, it was an adult solution to the problem. It wasn't like I had played when I was a kid at all. You yeah, know, yeah. There was, it, was, it was much less kill them all and take the treasure. We didn't need to kill everybody. We solved problems. And Tom had done it in the funniest way I had ever seen in my life. I, I could not stop laughing for like 20 straight minutes that night. And <laughs> I was telling the story to my kids for weeks after. Like, you guys, <laughs> you, you're going to have to try D&D because... <laughs> That was my moment of truth. It was it, it, that was just such a magical role playing moment that I was a part of. Playing as an adult has just been so incredibly great. I mean, you guys helped carry me through a divorce. It has been an incredible social outlet for me as a, a gentleman of a certain age uh, who really doesn't feel like he wants to date very much. <laughs> and <laughs> I'm grateful to have have had access to that most weeks uh, for the last four or five years yeah. it's been a really important part of my life well chris it's it's been i mean it's not gonna end anytime soon brother so don't, <laughs> <laughs> don't you worry about that and it, it's just a pleasure and honor to play with with great people it really is and uh the thing about the elmore moment that i remember as dm was that you webbed him and then very quickly it's like okay the heroes have this bag up against the wall so now what are they going to do and that group at that particular time had a particular they had a tendency to hem and haw and chew over what are we going to do and tom was like no and like right off the bat he just like yeah he vetoed it, it like here's what it we're was gonna complete, do just, yeah he overruled us he just did it he because it was he a character just went right ahead now nah, this is what we're gonna do and he's like he, he climbed he climbs up there with the spike i'm gonna tote this guy from raiders of the lost ark i'm gonna tote him and i was like holy moly like as a reference i made yeah and like as a dm my eyes are going wide because i'm like okay and this is like my in my head. I'm like, okay, Bill, this is what you trained for. This is when the thing you never possibly expected has happened. And now you can't do the original sin of DMing, which is basically somehow hand wave that none of this can happen so you can get back to the way you thought the adventure was going to go. That's called railroading. That's no bueno. It causes me less agitas as a DM to go at it from an improv thing because that way they're wrecking my plans less. <laughs> okay. So if I just have no plan and I simply <laughs> respond to what they do and give them something to respond to, it's more like narrative ping pong. Right. And then it just goes until we're done. It's not like I have this massive thing I wrote and like, well, I got to throw that away because they, they totally went off plot, which has happened in the past. And, you know, when I was younger, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen when they get this Minotaur. I'm sure they'll figure it out. They're smart guys. Last thing I expected was for Elmore to like, you know, get all Joe Pesci on us and like, you know, this thing and like, come here. I'm like, holy moly. I'm like, well, I guess I'll let the dice figure it out. And the beautiful thing about playing online, when you're playing at a tabletop, you know, DMs are often encouraged to have a shield up so you can have your notes, so you can have your behind the scenes material. So the players don't always know what's about to happen. But that often also encourages DMs to roll their dice behind the shield. So you don't really know what the dice are saying. And if somebody tells you they've been a DM and they never once fudged a die roll for some kind of narrative effect, then they are lying to you. I must you turn my everybody... office into a den of lies. <laughs> everybody has done it for some reason or another. And it's a very terrible thing to be seduced by because then you're like, well, I'm just going to make it more the way I think it should go. It's not yours to say what you think should happen. It's what does happen. So when we play online, all of our dice rolling is done by dice rolling bots, right? In like Google chat or something. So it's all public. And having all dice rolling way out in the public is so delightful. No one can argue with what the dice, everyone knows what the dice roll is. It is what it is. And it's not like, oh, you threw that die kind of lightly trying to get it, uh, whatever. It's like, dude, the, the boys at Google came up with a number. Okay, we wash our hands of it. Okay, this is a computer came up with this. How 9,000 decides if you save against death ray or not. So here it is. And so when Elmore's like, I'm going to do this thing, I'm like, okay, well, let's roll on the reaction table, see what happens. Now I'm as invested as everybody else. Like, well, what will happen? <laughs> you know? And, and the number comes up and we're all like, whoa! 
and you get the big cheer and it's almost like you're being at the table again and that that's i think a wonderful thing about modern role playing is that for people who can actually gather in a physical space together it's wonderful but you can have just about as close to that experience as possible playing in a video conferencing environment. For me, it feels just as much, just as real as when you're actually in a table because the play experience, you still have that shared drama of what's going to happen, what's going to go on. And, and after a while, you get over the notion of like you're speaking through screens and you're like, no, this is actually, I'm with my homies and we're, we're having the game and this is the moment. And the moment lands as true as it would have had done if we were all in my basement. Absolutely. So, so for me, when, when Elmore did that, it was just a great moment. <laughs> Chris, by the way, you know, for having a moment of truth that was about my character. I mean, <laughs> it, was my, it was honestly probably my favorite role-playing <laughs> moment of all time. It was just, and, and it was that, it was really close to the beginning of the campaign for me. Yeah. And so I was yeah. just like, oh my God, this is mind blowing and amazing. I've never seen anything like it. And it yeah, it made me fall in love with role-playing games harder than I ever had. I will say, all right, there was a reason that I waited until everybody else's character, with the exception of Chris, I waited until everybody else's characters were done to decide what to do to make Elmore. And it was because he was filling in like little holes in the party. But like, yeah. you know, we had that indecision thing where people like to really talk about stuff. So I gave him this mechanic of like, he has a death <laughs> wish. So he can pretty much Leroy Jenkins, like whenever anybody gets too, you know, mouthy about what they want to do. And we spend in 20 minutes talking about it. So that <laughs> party split ended. up. Uh, uh, you know, we were talking about parties coming and going over uh, issues with some of the other players. And and we reconvened, added added a couple, and and changed over to uh, fifth edition at fifth level, and we took those characters all the way to level twenty. Well, most of those characters. A big part of this podcast is to talk about the things we love and to talk about things in a positive way. So I don't try not, I try not to dwell on the negative, but the reason why that party broke up and parties break up for all kinds of reasons, right? But I have spent an awful lot of time watching the hobby progress and evolve and change and move and i've seen an awful lot of really regrettable behavior on part of my fellow rpg enthusiasts and on part of my fellow rpg professionals um i've seen a lot of them practice really disgusting misogyny i've seen a lot of them practice really disgusting racism there is a certain subset of role players that go to role playing because it gives them an outlet for venting the uglier aspect of our humanity. And I'm not down with that at all. But I will say that in D&D in particular, I think it's been really fantastic to see over the years, the designers have made a concerted effort when they write the game, the language they use in the core rules to be inclusive, to embrace diversity, to raise things like gender fluidity, sexual orientation, to represent people of all kinds of walks of life as all different kinds of heroes, to acknowledge that you need to see representation in these games, to imagine yourself in it. These things matter. I remember when that happened and we switched from AD&D to 5th edition, the societal awareness in AD&D versus 5th edition is night and day. When you look at D&D 5th edition, you look at how it has embraced diversity aggressively and the culture of the gamers around them are trying to include making gaming a, a welcome and safe space for female gamers, for gamers of color, for gamers of different kinds of sexual orientation and gender identity. These are big reasons why D&D 5th edition is far and away the most successful edition of D&D ever published. These are the reasons why more people have enjoyed and jumped into our hobby than ever before. And I remember for a period of like 10 or 15 years, the ongoing discussion was, oh my gosh, role-playing gaming as a hobby is dying. It's going away. More people are leaving for other things. And the great renaissance didn't come because the rules are so great and cracking. The hobby was saved by ditching some really repugnant attitudes of yesteryear. That's the way forward for this hobby. That's the way forward for this industry. That's the way forward for D&D. As a longtime gamer, I'm really delighted to see it. And I'm really proud of today's younger gamers in particularly. who are taking that banner and proudly running with it because they're making the game better for everybody. Could not agree more. I think you're right. You know, just seeing like the updated rules and just seeing like the, the newer players and their attitudes toward the game. It's like, it's completely different. I, I remember like the first time somebody tried to play somebody the opposite gender in my like original group. And it was kind of like, a, what, you know, what are you doing? Kind yeah, of what's wrong with you? Right. Why would you do that? 
And, you know, yeah. like gradually that became like accepted over time. And like people would just do it all the time. Like my kids, you know, we used to have a DM come to the house, you know, a guy who does a really professional job. They all mix genders. They, you know, they play non-humans and, and uh, you know, like one little girl, she's like, I want to be a unicorn. All right. They, you know, we bashed <laughs> stuff together and we made her a unicorn, you know, like that thing, yeah. you know, everybody gets to be what they want to be. And then like that, that openness of the canvas and the, you know, I think a lot of the old you know, unhealthy attitudes are, are disappearing from it. I really do believe that the future of gaming is in really fantastic hands as far as all that's concerned. And what I have seen from younger gamers, they're not simply non-racist or non-misogynist or non-homophobic. They're anti-racist. They're anti-misogynist. They're anti-homophobic. One of the big reasons why role-playing matters so much to me, and D&D in particular, is that it gives you a chance to live with a heroic ideal in your head that you're not sure you can find it in the world. and You're not sure you can make it be in the world. But it can stay in your head long enough until you find a way to, to make that happen. D&D can do wonderful things. It really can. It can do wonderful things for people. It can make, you know, it could be a huge waste of time for some folks, right? For some folks, it can just be a way to be, you know, ugly. But I see what people, you know, they look at why they play D&D and what they want to get out of it. And then you look at what kind of people they end up being. And I'm like, this, this is an engine for making some really great things happen. That's why I'm not just a fan of D&D. It's why I'm proud to play D&D. And I will always be proud to play D&D. I'd like to offer a, a quote by C.S. Lewis. Since it is so likely that children will meet cruel enemies, let them at least have heard of brave knights and heroic courage. Otherwise, you are making their destiny not brighter, but darker. Guys, thanks so much for joining us tonight. This has been Moments of Truth. We'll see you next time. Moments of Truth is hosted by Bill Coffin, Chris Crenshaw, Tom Hespos, and Joe Pace. This podcast is edited by Derek Eisenhart. The Moments of Truth theme is a mashup of The Clermont by Flash Fluherty and a little help from a Texas Instruments Speak and Spell. For more Moments of Truth, be sure to subscribe to this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And for hundreds of additional write-ups of my favorite movies, please visit BillCoffin.com.